So we're going to be looking at the, uh, the cultural mountain of influence of politics. And uh, just to give you a background on how I got involved in politics, uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian home in the sense that we were God-fearing, but I don't remember ever reading the Bible or praying with my parents. It just wasn't something we did. Now, my mother was very politically active, so was my father. My mother walked precincts. She was president of the Republican Women. My dad ran for city council twice, lost both times. Uh, he was president of the Rotary, president of the Chamber of Commerce, was re- real involved in the city. He was a naval officer, three tours of Vietnam, retired as a Navy captain. Both have passed. My dad passed last year, my mom, in 2010. Um, and I, I remember walking precincts with my mother when I was young. Uh, I remember stuffing envelopes for my dad's campaign. And I remember all these things very vividly. Uh, I remember I, I met most of the presidents that were living, although uh, I've got a few autographs. Um, I've got Gerald Ford's. I met him in LAX airport. He broke the pencil. He was angry. He threw it. Anyways, uh, met Ronald Reagan when I was 11, signed an autograph. Best wishes, Robert McCoy. Ronald Reagan gave that to me. It's worth a few grand now. Um, and I, I met Jimmy Carter at the Admirals Club in the Dallas airport, DFW, bumped into him. Everybody giggled. I didn't realize who I'd bumped into until he got off. I'm like, oh, the president. So... I uh, met Richard Nixon. Uh, we were stationed at the Navy Yard. I met him. And, and so I, I grew up with, and I remember in the 70s during uh, the hippie movement, we were, at the, we were stationed in Washington, D.C. at the Navy Yard. My dad, um, we went out for American Day, and we were at the Washington Monument, and all the hippies were gathered out there. And I remember my dad, as a young boy, he, I was six years old, he was putting me behind him as they were throwing bottles at us. And I saw the division in the nation, similar to what we're experiencing now. And you had the riots and all kinds of things occurring in the United States. And, and it was pretty intense. And, and when I came to Christ uh, in college, um, I got involved with Calvary Chapels. And um, I, I was really moved by them. I listened to Raul Reese and Greg Laurie on the radio and, and ultimately ended up there. But prior to ending up at uh, Calvary Chapel, I worked at an Armenian church in uh, Fresno, California. And while I was working at the Armenian church, I'm not Armenian. I was what they call an Odar. It's a really endearing term. means other I was non-Armenian, and uh, and I and as I was working there, Fresno in the in the '90s when we lived there, I was there with my my two girls. Actually, um, Kelly was born in Clovis, right there in Fresno, and Michelle and I were living there, and we were dirt poor. I was going to seminary. We were living in the equivalent of Section Eight housing, and the LA riots had occurred. You guys remember the Rodney King beating and all that stuff, and and Fresno was about to boil over at the time. Fresno had the second highest murder rate and the second highest car theft rate of any city in the United States. And it was about to explode after the LA riots. And uh, I was a young seminary student. I was also a youth minister at this Armenian church. And we lived in a terrible place. Uh, we watched, uh, we had a car stolen from our driveway. A woman was held up at gunpoint in our back fence. I remember one night my wife and I were watching the news. It was a, a, a SWAT drug raid on an apartment complex. We were watching on the news. We turned off the TV, opened the blinds and watched it live across the street. <laughs> True story. She's here. You can testify. And, and we were living in Fresno when it was a mess. There was a murder every night, a murder every night. And, um, and I remember I was invited to, to go up to the hills of Fresno, and the public and the private sector got together, and they wanted to figure out how to save their city. And um, I remember in attendance as I was watching it, uh, there was Pete Mihas. He was a superintendent of schools. I think he was a Democrat. Uh, 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 Ventura, or excuse me, Fresno County Sheriff uh, Ed McGarrion, who uh, I, I don't know what uh, – political affiliation he had. Ed Noble was a chief of police. Uh, Jim Patterson was the mayor. I know he was a Republican. Um, and we all gathered up there, the, the public and the private sector, business 
owners got, gathered up there because Fresno was in a free fall. We were in trouble. And we all got together and we said, what do we do to save our city? And we had uh, the entire weekend of prayer and seeking the Lord. And a lot of the folks weren't Christians, but they were, they were desperate, absolutely desperate. And we gathered together. And I remember one man in particular, his name was Bud Edmonds. He owned a company, I think, called Wilshire Paint. And he was in his 70s. And he said, and I was a youth minister at the time, and he said, listen, <clears throat> if anyone wants to go into the Lowell District, now the Lowell District was the epicenter of poverty in Fresno. Uh, this is where everything went down. And most of the gangs interacted there, and it was an awful place. And if you had to go to school there, or you were an immigrant, or you were poor, you couldn't get out. It was like Compton. It was the Compton of Fresno. And he said, if anyone is willing, to, any youth group is willing to go in and paint one of these slumlord houses in the Lowell District, I will donate the paint and the equipment for free. I thought, wow. So I took him up on it, and my youth group painted a number of houses. And the, the slumlords loved it, but the tenants loved it even more. And the idea is we were trying to lift the lowest rung of the ladder so that the entire city would be blessed. And we wanted to bring the presence of Christ into the middle of that inner city. And then the police got together with Pete Mihas, a superintendent of schools and a number of other organizations. And we got together and the police would go into these apartment complexes and these slumlord houses and they would remove the parole violators. And then the churches would adopt the, the apartment complexes and we put on an after-school reading program or a Bible club. And we started to adopt this all in the Lowell District. And in 1997, it was recorded that Fresno had the highest crime rate drop of any city its size in FBI statistic history. It went from being a cesspool to being America's finest city in less than three years because the public and the private sector got together and enacted legislation and did things to save the community. We never saw a riot, and there was a revival that occurred, and the churches were filled, and it was one of the most amazing things I ever witnessed. And I left there and got reconnected with the Calvary Chapels in San Jose, California, and then the Lord called us to come here. And I've been pastoring this church since 2001, and I decided to run for office in 2014. And I haven't always been very political, but I, I was always marveling at the fact that Calvary chapels never really engaged politically, and neither really did the church. The church nowadays is apolitical. Prior to 1954, almost every church in America had an election day sermon and endorsed candidates from the pulpit and gave you a voter guide uh, from the pulpit and walked you through. And that's where you went to get your voter guide and your information for voting in, prior to 1954. What happened in 1954 was a thing called the Johnson Amendment, where churches would be threatened with their tax-exempt status if they participate in anything political. Uh, and this was... Um, Lyndon Johnson, who was upset that one of the pastors didn't endorse him, and he put this in the IRS code. No church in the history of the United States has ever lost its tax-exempt status for political practices. It's a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, I'm so committed to that that I endorse candidates from the pulpit. I send in my sermons to the IRS, and I say, come get me, and none of them ever have. <laughs> because they know they can't enforce it, because a church is, a, is, is an organism that if you shut down, uh, we can open up tomorrow under another name. And half of the churches in America aren't even 501c3s where two or more are gathered. And, and this is the freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, freedom of religion. There's seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, 27 amendments, and then the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution begins with we the people in order to form a more perfect union. So the authority rests with us, and it was declared in our birth certificate that's 241 years old. We're the longest surviving constitutional republic in the history of the world. And, and, it, and it begins with, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this was given by John Locke. It was almost verbatim uh, based on his two treatises of government and, and um, a, a book that's, that, that's less than 400 pages long. He quotes scripture over 1,500 times, and it was the number one authority for all the founders to write the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that we possess today. 
John Locke was a believer. He was an amazing guy. You can read his two treatises of government. It's still available today. I'd encourage you to read it. And so as, as they put this together and they began the Constitution with we the people, the power rested with the people. It was unheard of in the history of, of government because prior to 1776, every government on the face of the earth was what type of government? A monarchy. A monarchy. And what had occurred in, in, in this revolutionary concept is that you had a group of people in 1620 that came across uh, and they were, they were Puritans, they were pilgrims, and they were reading a Bible that was transformative in Western culture. And the Bible was fascinating. It came out of the Reformation, and it was one that frightened kings and those in positions of authority because the world was dominated by monarchies. And they loved the ignorance and the illiteracy of the people because they could pull fast ones on them. And the kings owned everything, and you had the divine right of kings, and they ruled with an iron fist across the land. Well, these separatists, these Puritans, these pilgrims, started to read what is called the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Reformation. And what was fascinating about the Geneva Bible is that it was an accurate translation, but in the margin, it had commentary in the margins. And in the margins of the commentary, it dealt with civic government and how the scriptures pertain to a a civic-minded government that is influenced and directed by the scriptures themselves. And so with this understanding, they would look at it and they say, this is not what God desires as far as a monarchy. And you go, wait a minute, pastor. Look at the Bible. You had King David, you had King Solomon, you had King Jehoshaphat, you had King, 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 King. Yeah, yeah, you did. But lest you not forget that if you turn with me to First uh, Samuel chapter 8, First Samuel chapter 8. Let me see if... Uh, Can you do slide four? Slide four. First Samuel. That's a it's a slide that has four on it. There we go. That's not it. I I numbered it the way it came out of the print. There we go. First Samuel eight. So if you think a monarchy was God's divine purpose for government. Take a look at what God said to Samuel. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like the other nations. Wow, what happened? Are you guys upset with me or something? There we go. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed the voice, however, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And he goes on in other passages to describe that he's going to tax you, he's going to take your sons to war, he's going to enact himself, he's going to get the best of the land, he's going to usurp all these things, he's going to take from you, he's going to own all of it in the divine right of kings. And so what God was saying is, this is not my preferred form of government. What would you think that the preferred form of government would be if you go to slide five for me, if you would? Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, right? Hundreds, 
fifties, right? And tens. I'm a member of the Thousand Oak City Council. This would be local government. Peter Foy, who's a member of our congregation, is a county supervisor. That would be county government. The lady I ran against, Jackie Irwin, is a state assemblywoman, and that would be state government. And then, of course, you have Julia Brownlee, our congresswoman, and that is the federal government. In case you were wondering how we got that, there's the verse. This was the idea of our founders. This was the concept that they had put together as far as a form of government, that it was a representative form of government. And as they began to look at this Geneva Bible, they were intrigued by it. They put all these things together in such a way that they started to formulate the mindset of civic government. Now you say, well, where's the biblical principle for government? Could you do slide 20 for me? Slide 20. It begins with Genesis 8.1. Genesis 8.1. Do you see that? I'm throwing curveballs at him. There we go. This is a Noahic covenant. The sacredness of human life is established since man is made in the image of God. One who commits murder shows not only contempt for man, but also contempt for God. Genesis 9, 5. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, whether man or beast, must be put to death. And this is seen as the institution of human self-government. You have to enforce the law. That's capital punishment. You take a life, your life will be taken from you. This is the Noahic, Noahic covenant And this came about as a result of governing, self-governance, and this is the idea. So as they would look at the Geneva Bible and they'd lay these things out, they started to formulate this concept of civil government. And it was a practical guide. The Bible, they believe, was a practical guide to government and society. And it revolutionized the world. Uh, These folks were fervent readers of the Bible. Most of the pilgrims read their Bibles multiple times, uh, uh, many hours a day. And they were well-versed in the scriptures. Um, but for four, uh, four centuries, kings had ruled all of Europe. And all of a sudden, they desired self-governance. Uh, I don't know what slide it is. I've already lost track. But let's, yeah, here it is. Uh, slide number one. When they landed in, in this country in 1620, these pilgrims that had come over, when they landed, they did a compact. It was the first form of civil government. And they laid this out. Slide number one begins in the name of God. Amen. Do you see it? It's the first slide, top. There you go. So this is this is what's called the Mayflower Compact. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, and having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. This was the very first civil enactment of government on the shores of the United States of America, and the sole purpose of their covenant, of this compact, was for the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of the king and country, the voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof enact, constitute, and frame just such. So you can see that these folks were committed to civil government and they were doing it based on the Reformation mindset that was transforming Western civilization. When they did this and they enacted the, the uh, Mayflower Compact, um, they were committed to this civil government. And by 1619, there had already been a Virginia legislature that had been established. But the marginal commentary for this Geneva Bible was the one that moved these pilgrims to establish what they did in Massachusetts. They established, uh, when they came here in 1620, a lot of you go, 
You remember this one. In 1621, the first slaves were brought into the United States down the James River. You guys probably were taught that in high school. And then America has been the slave-owning country ever since its foundation. 1621, slaves did come down the James River. And, and yes, they, they, they did have slavery. But in this Massachusetts colony, when slaves were introduced and the ship's captain arrived with a boatload of slaves in 1624, they arrested the ship's captains and they sent the slaves back to Africa at their own expense. They, the, the pilgrims or the, the, the Puritans paid for the transportation and they wouldn't tolerate slavery in their, their, their realm. They started to look at the scriptures and how to put these things together. And they looked at some of the scriptures such as private property. Private property you can find in Exodus uh, chapter 20. Let me see if I can turn there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It's slide six if you want to pull it up. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, his donkey, nor anything that is in your neighbor's. And so they, they looked and they said, you're not allowed to steal. And so they started to set up civil government based on the scriptures themselves. And if you look at the founding documents of each of the colonies, and especially when they have their constitutions for these states, they all incorporate the Ten Commandments with the exception of Rhode Island that does five of the Ten Commandments. And to say that America had no influence of scripture, and yet looking at John Locke, of the 15,000 quotes of the founders that were studied by a political science organization. They looked at the 15,000 quotes that they could derive from the founders. 39% of them were direct quotes from the Bible. Another 22% were direct quotes from John Locke's two treatises of government where over 1,500 quotes and less than 400 pages were scripture. The number one main influence of all of our founders in the establishment of government was the Bible. And so they established this. Um... One of the reasons why they stood in opposition to slavery is, it, you can write these verses down, but they, they looked at Acts seventeen twenty six and Revelation 7, 9, and they saw that all were created in the image of God and they wouldn't tolerate slavery. They even put together a social policy on how to run. And when they arrived in the new world, they started an idea of communism, which was a, a form of socialism. And everyone put into a common pot and they all took as they had need, Right? Everybody worked, they went out and they did their work, they all put it in a common pot, and people would come and take as they had need. And it's, it's socialism, basically. Well, what they started to realize is there were some slackers. And socialism is a great thing for anyone who's lazy. Because somebody else does the work, and you still get the same amount. If I were to, to look at you and say, you, you have an A in your class, you're getting an A. Okay, good, congratulations. And you're getting an F, all right? Because you're not doing the work, and you got that A because you worked your tail off, right? And you're getting an F because you don't do squat. And, and I say, you know what? I want us all to be equal. I'm going to take an A and a B from you and give you a C so that we can rise him up to a C. How do you all feel about that? You're fine, aren't you? <laughs> that is socialism. Did he earn it? She did. But we took from her and gave to him. And so when they started to see that this socialism wasn't working, they started to apply, and, and two verses that really st stuck out to them. Uh, let's see if I have the slide here. Uh, yeah, pull up slide number eight, if you would. First Timothy 5, 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Second Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we, commend, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And they said, look, you got to earn your way. 
You got to be industrious. And you had what was called the Protestant work ethic, protesters, Protestant work ethic. They looked at work as a worship. That what they were doing, they were doing as unto God. And they realized that God gave them the ability to labor and that it was productive. And so this is what set their social policy and they changed from socialism and started to apply these things. Now the Geneva Bible was so influential that the king, the king outlawed it. The kings outlawed it. They didn't like the commentary. They didn't like the civil unrest. They didn't like their people being educated so they could realize that the divine right of kings was not God's original intent for, for self-governance. And so they outlawed any printing of the English Bible. And what they did to counteract the Geneva Bible is they came up with what you're holding in your hand, is, although it's the new King James Version. They came up with the King James Version by King James. King James did. It was the exact rendition. It came from the Tyndale Bible. The, the text itself is, is almost exactly similar to the Geneva Bible. The only thing that was missing was the commentary. It was the commentary. And so they had a, a, an English Bible printed by the king that could be put in the hands of the people, but no commentary was allowed, and they wanted to keep the people ignorant. And so they gave them this Bible, but without the commentary, and it was outlawed in the colonies that any English Bible could not be printed without the king's authority. And they sought to shut down this, this Geneva Bible. And it was the Bible of the Reformation. Um, in 1647... These pilgrims realized that the only way that they could have a civil government that would be successful is that their people had to be literate. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so they said, we have to set up a public school system to educate our children in the scriptures so they cannot be duped and cheated in life. And they can understand what the purpose of life is. And so in, what they did is they set up in, in, uh, in the colonies the very first public school system, and it was done in 1650. And it was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. This was the very first public school address. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, yeah, slide nine. Slide nine. This is, this is from the Old Deluder Satan Act. If being one chief project of the old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures as in former times by keeping them in unknown tongues, so in these latter times by persuading from the use of tongues uh, that so that at least the true sense and meaning of the original might be clouded and corrupted with false glosses of saint-seeming deceivers, and to the end that learning may not be buried in the grave of our forefathers in church and commonwealth, the Lord assisting our endeavors. And so they go on to say, if you have a certain number of people in your community, you're required to have a teacher for the, t for the students. If they can't afford it, the, the, the community will provide. And so they set up a public school system to teach kids the scriptures so they couldn't be deceived. Now, you guys know about the Salem witch trials, and I get this all the time. You know, what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? What about the Salem witch trials? Christianity has ruined the world. Okay, how many people died in the Salem witch trials? Less than 30. Still, it's a lot, but less than 30. And it was all because they were ignorant of the scriptures and they started based on dreams. They would have these, these dreams and they would prosecute someone based on a dream that some young girl had. And they started to call people witches and hang them or burn them at the stake. It was pastors who ended the Salem witch trial. And they said, look, based in the scripture, you have to come with two or three witnesses. And we'll cover that in a minute. And it set up our due process laws. And even uh, Justice Stevens, who was one of the most liberal on the Supreme Court said, all of our due process laws in America came from the scriptures. 
And it was the Salem witch trial that set up our due process. We ended the witch trials while in Europe, uh, another 100,000 died. We lost 27. And it was pastors who ended it because they wanted to educate the populace and get away from this idea of, of, uh, as it says, saint-seeming deceivers. That this is somehow scriptural, that we're allowed to kill people. The scriptures don't say that. And the more they educate themselves, the smarter they became. And so they put together the old deluder Satan act. They didn't want... um, anything other than to educate the children. And what they did is they came up with a book uh, to educate the kids. And uh, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, here we go. I want to ask you a couple questions and then we'll see how smart you are. Let me find it here. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Uh... Can we go to slide 21? This was called the New England Primer. It was the number one textbook in America uh, for the first two centuries. And up into the 1930s, it was still used in America. But all of our founders were educated under this New England Primer. If you've ever seen it, the book is about this big, about that wide, and about that thick. Wouldn't you like that to be your only textbook? Your backs would be fine. You wouldn't go to the chiropractor, just that little thing. just a little thing. All of our kids were educated in the New England primer. It would go, uh, so it had this idea A. They were teaching the alphabet A. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. B. Better is a little fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble uh, therewith. C. Come unto Christ all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. D. Do, do not the abominable thing which I hate, saith the Lord. E. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. F, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. This is what they were educated in in the early portions of our government. And you're telling me that we aren't a nation that is founded with biblical principles. You haven't done your homework. This is history. They're not going to teach you this. You've got to dig it up. And we, do, we are a biblically illiterate culture. These are the questions, and, and don't put them up yet. I'm going to ask the questions, and then you'll get a chance to see if you got the answers correct. By the way, these questions, six of them I'm going to read, were for first graders. If you were in fifth grade, you had to pass all of these. These are all fifth grade and below. What office does Christ execute as our Redeemer? How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Now, I know that we that uh, Pastor Mark has taught this, and you guys are going, wow, I got the priest and the prophet, and the fifth graders got this. And I'm wondering if you guys have the answers to it. I do, because they're right in front of me. <laughs> How does Christ execute the office of a priest? How does Christ execute the office of a king? These were first grade questions. Uh, This is question 39. What is the duty which God requires of man? What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? Can you answer any of those? Fifth graders could. Let's pull them up so you can see the answers to the questions. What is... What office doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of a prophet, a priest, of a king, both in the estate of humiliation and exaltation. How does he do it for a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God uh, for our salvation. You can see the answers. 
You could not pass until you understood the answers. These are all biblically literate people. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, we struggle with this concept of law and subjective morality. Oh, I'm glad that's good for you. That's really cool. And I'm glad that you go to church. That's awesome. And, and, you know, whatever works for you, that's great. And there's no, there's no absolutes. There's, there's no moral absolutes. And people say, you, have you ever heard this one? You can't legislate morality. Anyone ever heard that? Bueller, anybody? You can't legislate morality. Every law that's made is a legislation of somebody's morality, period. It's a law. Graduating class of Harvard Law School, over the door of Harvard Law School, declares the law, the wise restraints that make men free. The wise restraints that make men free. How do restraints make you free? The wise restraints that make men free. That's the law. How does restraints make you free? Well, the founders, the ancients, when they looked at the law, we think that that freedom is the absence of restraint. And who are you to judge me? And, and quit, don't put your trip on me. Don't, hey. Sorry, I'm old. I just use those weird words. But the idea is, what is the purpose of the law? And, and here's, here's what the ancients understood. When they said the wise restraints that make men free, they were brilliant. How do restraints make you free? It's real simple. Tom Brady, pretty good quarterback. Yeah? Epic comeback in the Super Bowl. Unbelievable. Anyone? (laughs) He has applied restraint so that he could pursue excellence. You see, the application of restraints is for the purpose of excellence. You think that freedom is no restraints so that you can pursue your debased nature. Hey, if I want to smoke, drink, or chew, or hang around with those who do, leave me alone. Who are you to tell me? And then you start to rebel with your parents and any authority figure, and everyone checks out and is on their own in this chaos and and, and anarchy, right? Or you say, I want the government to do it for me. And then the, the restraints become heavy, and you're limited in what you can do, and you can have anything you want as long as it's this. And there's none left, so get in line. But the wise restraints that make men free, they looked at it as freedom wasn't the absence of restraint. Freedom was the ability to pursue excellence. So let me show you the illustration going back to Tom Brady. Tom Brady has the freedom to pursue football at a higher level than I'll ever be able to enjoy because he's applied restraints. While I'm sitting in front of the TV eating a kielbasa sausage and pizza, (laughs) he's out practicing, right? And you want to be good at anything, you study. You want to be good at anything, you work out. You want to be good at anything, you practice. And you restrain from that which comes easy. It doesn't take a lot for me to eat a kielbasa and sit in a couch. And it doesn't take a lot for you to sit in front of an idiot box with the, the Nintendo or the Xbox or whatever it is. While your life is wasting away, you're not applying restraints for the pursuit of excellence. You're just an idiot. Hello? So when you apply restraints, you pursue excellence. That's the purpose of the law. That's why we don't allow alcohol to be sold near a school. That's civil, civic government. That's our job. 
because if they have access to it, they are in bondage to it and they can't pursue excellence because they're addicted. But the mindset of secular humanism without absolutes and with, with subjective morality is that you just do whatever, just find yourself. I've, I've, I don't like me. I, I did that. It's awful. Anyone else have that problem? I did. I don't know. But when we look at these things, they had established the law to allow us to pursue excellence. That's the purpose of government. It is biblically inspired. It's, it, it, is, it is all the way from Genesis, and you can see it throughout the text. And here, the New England Primer, it was all about educating and giving biblical literacy to the entirety of that generation. Um, to, to pass that test, there's 170 questions at the end of the New England Primer. And I'm, I'm wondering how many of you could answer the ones I just read. And if you did answer those, you, you get out of the first grade. Congratulations. Um, and so this government comes onto the face of the earth and they set it up and all of our founders are educated in this New England primer and they start to grasp this concept of, of a God-inspired government. And they start to see mankind through the, the mindset of the scriptures and through the Geneva Bible with civil government and they start to set it up. Now, they come up with, and this came directly out of the two treatises of law, John Locke, they came up with the Declaration of Independence. This is our birth certificate. We've been under this birth certificate for 241 years. The longest surviving constitutional republic in the history of the world. In the time that we have been a country, France has already gone through 15 changes of government. Since 1822, Brazil's gone through seven changes of government. Poland's gone through seven since 1921. Russia has gone through four since 1918. We've been under the same birth certificate for 241 years. And what happened is they established this idea that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We'll cover that in a moment. But it's one of only two constitutions in the history of the world that declares God is overseeing. Inalienable means you can't take it away and you can't give it away. If God isn't the one in authority and man is, then who gives the rights? Those in positions of power. So when our constitution begins with we, the people, that power is rested in civil government in the Noahic covenant. And here we have that authority and, and seven articles of the constitution where we give the power on loan to our representatives and we break it into three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial branch, which is president, Supreme Court, and the Congress, right? And you go, why do we have those three branches of government? It's a biblical principle. Let's, let me see if I can find it. We can turn to it. Um, yeah, here we go. Pull up, uh, if you would, slide 15. So they realize the separation of powers, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so they set up three forms of government so that any two could outdo the other one. 
You guys see the Supreme Court having great authority and everybody's worrying about the next appointed Supreme Court justice and Gorsuch and what are we going to do and then the balance is going to shift. And it used to be that the Supreme Court was the least powerful of the three branches of government. Now it's the one that dominates because Supreme Court justices are starting to realize they can legislate from the bench, which they're not supposed to. They're supposed to enact, enforce the law. It's Congress that sets the law. And now they're legislating from the bench, and now this is a power authority. And Jefferson went through this, and when he became president, he let go of a number of, of, of justices. He just said, okay, I'm just not going to fund them. And so the executive branch got together with the, with the legislative branch, and they shut down the judicial branch, brought them into order because they were stepping outside their realm of authority in the U.S. Constitution. Leviticus 19.34, the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in a land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution on our immigration policies came directly out of that text. Deuteronomy 17.15, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among you, your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. That's Article 2, Section 1. The President of the United States has to be a natural-born citizen. I don't want any Kenya comments. But the reason why is because of the Scripture. That's where they put it. Go to the next slide, if you would. Deuteronomy 17.6, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Due process law. You have to have witnesses. It can't, be, it can't be a dream. Salem witch trials. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Article 3, section 3 of the U.S. Constitution. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul whose sins shall die, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear, bear the guilt of the son. The righteous the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You can't imprison the family, and that's Article 3, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution. You can't imprison the family for the sin of, of an individual. All of these came from Scripture. Look at uh, the next slide. Look at this. This is the, the three branches of our U.S. government. Isaiah thirty three twenty two. For the Lord is our judge, judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver, legislative. The Lord is our king, executive. He will save us. Three branches of government. Ezra seven twenty four. one of my favorites. Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax tribute or custom on any priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, nothing them, or servants in the house of God. That's our tax-exempt status for clergy. Came out of the scriptures. And so these are a lot of things. How many of you have learned this in school? Could you raise your hand? How many of you know the answers to the New England Primer? We are biblically illiterate and we're being led down a rosy road to nowhere. We have a constitutional republic which is the freest in the land. We represent less than 3% of the world's population and we're responsible for the greatest achievements and the more wealth accumulated than any country in the history of the world. If anyone's in trouble, they call the men and women of the United States Armed Forces to come and save them. We keep the shipping lanes open with our United States Navy. We are the ones that police the world. And the freedom that we're enjoying, we're losing. We're now trillions of dollars in debt. Our churches have disengaged in the political processes. First Timothy chapter three says, pray for kings and those in authority that live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. That's a pastoral epistle. It's an exhortation from Paul to Timothy. Pretty good one, yeah? Pray for kings and those in authority that live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. 
And I, and I say this in front of pastors. I go, okay, praise the Lord. Pastor Epistle, Paul to Timothy, I'm sure you guys are all praying for kings and those in authority. Could you please tell me where you're gonna have the greatest effect by your prayers and your application of the gospel into your culture as a mountain of influence? Can you tell me, please, who are your five council members that you pray for by name? Who are they? Who are the five school board members that you pray for by name? Who are they? What are the issues that they're dealing with that you're praying for in specific that are going to pertain to the children? Because if one of these is led astray, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast in the deepest ocean. So what are those issues you're praying for? Do you know, know them? Pastoral epistle. Local government. Pray for the peace of the city, for in its peace you'll have peace. Jeremiah 29. Build houses, plant vineyards, be given in marriage, give your children in marriage. All exhortations of the Lord. I don't do politics. Let me just share with you what's happened since 1954, and I'm going to use a perfect illustration. Calvary Chapel, we started in 1967. Chuck Smith was a four-square pastor. He was in his 50s. He saw all these hippies that were just drugged out. It was postmodern. They had pulled away from the church and they were all lost and they were going after Eastern religion and mysticism and they were drugging up and it was just a sea of humanity. And that's when I was a little boy and I was hiding behind my father at the Washington Monument. Chuck's out here in California where the hippie movement's big. He and Kay see this sea of humanity that is lost and their heart is burdened. They begin to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, novel concept. They bring in what's called Maranatha music Contemporary music, they use syncopated rhythms and electric guitars, never before done. They preach in spirit and in truth, and they believe in the gifts of the spirit, and all of a sudden transformation. Their eschatology was pre-trib, pre-millennial. Pre-trib, pre-millennial means they believe in a rapture, and Christ is coming back. The next thing on is a day planner is a rapture, and we got to save as many kids. The house is on fire. we got to get the kids out because Jesus is coming back in any minute. Chuck believed that he'd see the rapture in his lifetime. He died. He had a personal rapture, but he... And I'm not a real eschatology guy. Eschatology means study of the end times. I know Calvary Chapel is pre-trib, pre-millennial. Our founders were, were post-trib, post-millennial. They thought they had to usher in the second coming of the Lord and they set up civic government because they wanted to set up a kingdom that he would be proud of. They set up Harvard and Yale and Princeton to educate pastors. They gave the New England primer. They educated their children in biblical concepts. But Calvary Chapel, our pre-trib, pre-millennial, every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. The asset for pre-trib, pre-millennial of Calvary Chapel in 1967 is we were all about evangelism. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Man is sinful. Christ left heaven, died on a cross, paid the penalty for man's sins. You receive it by faith. If you believe it, you're saved. God casts your sins as far as east is from the west. He imputes his righteousness to you. You're a new creature in Christ and you've been saved when you say the, you know, Jesus saved me, forgive me of my sins. I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, gospel. Gospel is oolongelion, means good news. So they start preaching the gospel. They have altar calls. Calvary Chapel, 1967, starts in California. 1967 in California, Reagan's governor. We have some of the lowest taxes in the country. It's the state of the future. I was born here in 64. I'm a third generation Californian. I mean, this was the state. Our water delivery system was unbelievable. We had just started plans. We were building dams. It was amazing. I-5 freeway, everything was set up. Businesses were coming out here. Air Force was setting up. We had the space industry. It was cooking. 
Our secondary education, all of our universities were the finest in the country. Our, our elementary and high school education was the finest in the country. And Chuck Smith begins to preach the gospel verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we experienced 10,000% growth since 1967. So here we are in 2017. What is that? Uh, 50 years. Preaching that gospel. 1,600 Calvary chapels around the world. The lion's share of those churches are right here in California. Four of the 10 largest churches in America are Calvary chapels. We do the Harvest Crusades with Greg Laurie. And, while we, and, and, and that 10,000% growth is conversion growth, not transfer growth. These are people that came to Christ. But the one thing Chuck was emphatic about, because in the 60s, we'd had the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. Everyone was disillusioned with politics. They were sickened by it. We had Nixon and Watergate, anyone? Hope and change. We were all disillusioned. Everyone. And Chuck stays away from politics. He's just about the gospel. So preaching the gospel, watching people get saved, seeing 10,000% growth, how has that affected California? Well, in 1967, we had the fifth largest GDP. Abortion wasn't legal. Divorce was the exception, not the rule. And since that time, California is the author of no-fault divorce, transgender bathroom bills. We're not the fifth largest GDP. We have the ninth. We lead the nation in taxes. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We had the highest taxes to begin with, which is at 12 cents a gallon. Our energy prices are 48% higher in Colorado, which is the next highest in the country. And all the taxes, we also have the highest debt of any state in the, in the nation. You take the next four largest states, combine their debt, it doesn't equal California's debt. We have the worst infrastructure. Our roads are falling apart. We have the worst schools. Thank God for Mississippi. We're above them. And are you ready for this? We lead the nation in abortion. But we don't do politics. Cultural mountain of influence. We just stay out of it. Sacramento. Executive, legislative, and judicial branch is dominated by one party. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. I'm saying that's an imbalance. It's nice to have a balance. And you you have no idea what happens up there. Most of us are not even educated in the political process. Millennials can't afford to live here. More people have left the state than came here during the Dust Bowl. We lost another 500 jobs from Amgen. Toyota moved out of the state. Every state that has low taxes is is exploding. California's imploding. We're in trouble. And this is a picture of the absence of Christians in this cultural mountain of influence. And you don't even know who your school board members are and you don't know who your council members are and you don't even pray for them. And we can make a difference right here. 2014, I ran for state government. I didn't have any idea. I was asked to run. I didn't, it was crazy. I learned a lot. I've gotten a doctorate since then. In two years, we've made a difference in our community. One little church stepped into the process and made a difference. Pushback from the body of Christ. Man, what are you doing? But in two years, we've made a difference. We've made a difference on the school board. We've made a difference on the city council. We just made a difference at the supervisory level. We made a difference in this, in this community in a profound way. And the pastors start to see it. This is a cultural shift. 
We're starting to realize that we're supposed to engage. This is our calling. But you know why Christians don't get engaged in politics? They say politics is dirty. Guess what? So is the church. I, I still participate in the church. Anywhere we have sinners, it's going to be dirty. Good government only happens with good people. Do we lead the nation in abortion because Christians did that? Hello? The answer is yes. The absence of Christians did it. Do we have the highest taxes in the country because Christians did it? Yeah, because Christians don't participate. 85 million evangelical Christians in America in a presidential election, 24.2% of them vote. Non-presidential election, 12.5%. You have a constitutional republic where you can have a voice, we the people. And I've heard this before too, Romans 13, that we'd be subject to all those in positions of authority. God appoints them. Why do we have to engage? Let's not do anything. He's sovereign. Let's just sit and, you know, eat. He says, occupy until I come. And if you look at Romans 13 in the basis of the U.S. Constitution, we the people. Who's the governing authority in Romans 13? We the people. Who's to be afraid of us? Our legislators. We possess the authority to shut them down. That's the concept that we've been given. And we have the ability to affect change. Um, interestingly enough, the final battle in... Uh, I'm running out of time. I'll do this real quick. 1781 to 1783. In 1781, the Battle of Yorktown, this is where Cornwallis surrenders. We win the Revolutionary War, we call the War of Independence. We win it. Cornwallis signs the Paris Peace Treaty. Benjamin Franklin's signature is on it. He's the only one to have a signature on the three major founding documents. As soon as they do this, America is now a government. They have a con- the Continental Congress. And the very first act that they put together in 1783 is they authorized the first printing of an English Bible on the U.S. continent, and it's called the Bible of the Revolution. Authorized by the Continental Congress, paid for by the government, and they print 20,000 copies. There's 26 remaining today. It's one of the rarest books on the face of the earth, and it was for the educating of our children. They don't teach us in school. Congressional endorsement for the people. And then I'll, I'll, I'm running out of time and I want to answer questions, so we'll do this. Uh, 1787, they're trying to put together this government. They wanted to make um, George Washington king. He stepped down. He wouldn't do it. They're trying to put together a government. They're laboring over it. They're struggling over it. They're reading all kinds of information. They're reading John Locke's two treatises of government. They're influenced by it. But they come to a place where they're struggling over the slavery issue and they're struggling, struggling over representation for these states. They wanted to do away with slavery. You heard about the three-fifths compromise where they said the three-fifths compromise wasn't saying that a black person is less valuable than a white person. What they were saying is the southern states that had slavery wanted to use their slave population to get greater representation in the lower house. And so the northerners realized they're, they're, they're going to get more representation they deserve and they shouldn't, they shouldn't put it on the backs of the slaves because they wanted to do away with slaves. So they did the three-fifths compromise and they said anyone who is indentured as a slave is three-fifths considered for the counting for representation in the lower house. They wanted to annihilate slavery. That was the three-fifths compromise. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. 
And so they put this together and they're struggling because they're thinking equal representation. You get two senators for everyone. And, and they say, well, what about the lower house? Or, or how do we get represent? Why do they get the same representation? They have less of a population. The majority of the population is here in New York. Or, or you know, we, we, we only have slaves and, and we don't have regular, you know, citizens. And they're struggling over representation. And, they, and they've come to a loggerhead and they're fighting and they're about to disband and go away. And as they're leaving and they're giving up, George Washington runs out to George Mason. He says, come back, please. And he tries to muster them all together and he gets them all and it's boiling hot in Philadelphia in the summer. Constitutional convention, they're struggling. And Ben Franklin, who's struggling with gout, he's in his 80s. He's got a signature on the three founding documents. He stands up in the middle of this constitutional convention. Um, Do we have, do you guys, I don't know what slide it is. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, slide 10. Mr. President, the small progress we have made, he gives a speech and he says, Mr. President, the small progress we have made after these four or five weeks, close attendance and continual reasoning with each other, our differences, sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as eyes, is methinks a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom. Some we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which have been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. Next slide. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in this struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And and have we now forgotten that powerful friend? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. Next slide. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate incident despair of establishing governments, be human wisdom, and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. Next, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and his blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate that service. The legislature in the U.S. House opens every time by prayer based on that statement and has continued for 240 years in this nation. Can anyone tell me this deist, Benjamin Franklin, name the four verses that he quotes? He wasn't biblically illiterate. You had James 1, you had Genesis 11, you had Matthew 17. He went through all of them. And he just popped that off from the top of his head. Oh, but he was a deist. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, name one slaveholder. Thomas Jefferson. Name another. George Washington didn't sign it. 
Name all the abolitionists. There were over 30. They don't teach you that. So it's 8.20. Let me, uh, let me conclude with this. Um, it's one of my favorite epics in history. And um, in January of 1776, America is engaged. They're starting to realize that they want to go against Britain. And the four major battles prior to 1776 were the British attacking the colonists. And finally, they'd had enough. They'd had the Boston Massacre and they'd had Lexington. They were, they were tired of it. And so they get together and the British have taken over Boston. They've occupied it. And they've established the Continental Army and they're up at Dorchester Heights. And they've been able to stave off the British. They have the upper ground, the high ground, but they don't have any artillery. And, and the British are waiting for this, the winter to end and then they're gonna attack the colonists or the Continental Army and, and this revolution will be over. And Washington realizes he doesn't have any armament. He knows that it's just a matter of time and this whole experiment in liberty is gonna be over. A young bookseller from Boston, his name was John Knox, or excuse me, Henry Knox. John Knox was the guy in Scotland. Henry Knox had had his bookstore burned. He was 24 years old. He was kind of a rotund guy. He was a bookworm. He comes to Washington and he says, look, I can get you artillery. He goes, what do you know about artillery? He goes, I've read a book. (laughs) He says, I can get you artillery at Fort Ticonderoga. It's a 300 mile journey. This is what I'm going to need. Washington hears it and he says, do it. He makes one of the greatest feats in engineering in the history of the United States, probably in the world, to go over and get the tonnage. He had to put it on, on, on skids to go over a frozen lake. Then he had to put it on carts. And then he had to put it back on skids to go over the mountain to be towed through the snow. It was one of the coldest winters on record. He finally gets there just as the snow's thawing. He brings it all the way up to Dorchester Heights and the fog, and they were expecting the British to invade in the next day or the day after. The fog is all over Boston Harbor, but on the top of Dorchester's Heights, it's a full moon night, completely lit, and they set up all of the artillery. The fog lifts, the British realize it, they begin to bombard Boston, and the British evacuate, and, and, the, and they all begin to cheer. Based on that, they go into this Declaration of Independence, which was signed July 4, 1776, and they're thrilled. And they declare their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, and they put it all on the line. And they're going to war against Great Britain, the greatest empire on the face of the earth that had just beaten the second greatest empire, which was France. And now they're going to annihilate this upstart group of nobodies. And, and the, the, the colonists lose battle after battle after battle after battle after battle. They're getting whooped. They finally get into New York. They're on the peninsula in Manhattan and they're trapped. And the British take all of their ammunition stores. They take everything and they're going, they're bringing in the British fleet. They're going to bombard Washington. It's over. The winds stave off the British fleet. A fog comes over the East River. Washington gets all of his troops. They, they cover the paddles in, in cloth and they row the entire Continental Army over to Harlem, uh, Har, uh, Harlem Heights. They cross the East River, they get up to Valley Forge and they survive the winter. They're, they're out of ammunition, they're out of bullets with, with what's remaining in their weaponry. They have no artillery, the British have seized it all. There's about 1,400 men that can muster. Half of the men that are in Valley Forge have dysentery and are dying. And a third of the troops that are remaining of the 1,400 have to wrap their feet in burlap sacks because they have no boots. And Washington realizes that January 1, all the conscriptions will be up and the war will be over because it'll have no, no more army. 
it's over. And he passes out a pamphlet that was written by a guy named Thomas Paine called The American Crisis. And he sends it out to all the troops on December 23rd, 1776. And it says, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price on its goods. And it would be, a strange, it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. And based on this article sent out to all the remaining troops, they marched nine miles to Trenton, crossed the frozen waters of the Delaware River. They attacked the Hessians on Christmas Eve when everyone is sitting by the fire enjoying it. And all the Hessians were drunk because they knew the war was over. Washington has a victory. France enters the war. Conscriptions go up. And now you're sitting in the 241st year of this nation, the freest nation on the face of the earth, founded with biblically literate human beings who understood the celestial article of freedom. Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. And we're this close to losing it because we don't do politics. Tell me a better form of government. Socialism? Communism? Christianity is responsible for so many atrocities. How many atrocities has happened with governments that don't have God? Communism? Pol Pot, Stalin, Mao Zedong, billions, billions with a B have died. It's worth fighting for. And this is the last thing. Eighteen fifty-four. Eleven people are so sickened by slavery. They watch the Whig Party and the Democratic Party, and everybody's just disillusioned. these people are so committed that all men are created equal and create the image of God. They get together in a church in Ripon, Wisconsin. They say, how do we end slavery? And I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, it's irrelevant. This is just history. Trust me, partisan issues are irrelevant to me. It's just history. These 11 people get together and they form what's called the Republican Party for the sole purpose of abolishing slavery. Seven aspects of their platform, five of them dealt specifically with slavery. 97% of blacks in America were Republicans up until the 1950s. And they go forward to end slavery and they get an influx in the House and the Senate with this new party. By 1854, they have an influx in the House and the Senate, 1860, and they get a president elected by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Lowest popularity rating before he stepped into office, seven states had seceded from the Union. Uh, The nation was in the grips of a civil war. 650,000 people die in a field of battle and he gets a bullet to the back of the head. But slavery's ended in our country. And what was fascinating about this man is that he was hated and despised. He had the lowest popularity rating. He showed up at Gettysburg after the Battle of Gettysburg and they were dedicating in November, they were dedicating the battlefield. And the battle had occurred in July. And the dead, there'd been massive rains and arms were sticking out and the stench of dead bodies and rotting bodies. And Edward Everest was supposed to be the keynote speaker and they didn't even want the president there, but he'd shown up. He wasn't even the keynote. They didn't give the president of the United States, the commander in chief, the the honor to be the first to speak. Edward Everest goes on for an hour and bloviates. 
Abraham Lincoln steps up and he gives a very concise speech, which is called the Gettysburg Address. He said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We're met on a battlefield of that war and we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave their last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the face of the earth. And I look at your generation, I'm 53, I'm on my downhill side. And I look at you guys. You want to talk about a cultural influence where you can make a difference in a very short period of time? Do your homework. Don't be a a reed blowing in the wind. Stand firm. You have an amazing ability to affect that. Pastors aren't going to lead. They're too... Too frightened. I know, I, I've been there. And it's, it's a strange world to us. But you can lead. And this is your generation. I'm gonna do my best to leave it better than I found it. I'm trying. But it's given to you. You're, you're young and strong and smart. And more than that, you're here because you wanna make a difference. I can go on and on, but I'll stop. It's 831, and if you have questions, I'll answer them. First question I have. What does it take as a pastor in politics to maintain his effectiveness in ministry while giving his all to his public office? Well, every public official has dual duty because city council is not a full-time position. So you've got a full-time assistant fire chief for the Los Angeles Fire Department. You've got a financer. You've got a a guy who's a retired detective, but he's also taken on a job as an insurance investigator. Uh, Claudia is a full-time mom. Um, so it's, it's part-time for all of us. And I, I think the balance is, the difficulty for the, is more for the congregation than it is for the community because um, the congregation has to hear illustrations that pertain to the stuff I'm going through, so they probably tire of it. But um, I think it's a good balance because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're making a difference. So I... I I don't know. Just balance. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Thanks. Um, now that you've won an election, and now for some time, we've won. We've your, won three elections. Yeah. But you personally, what? Yeah. I've won three elections. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Yeah. Now that you're in office, <laughs> what are your goals, short term and long term? Uh, city council goals. Yeah. 
Um, one of the things that we're pushing for is we want to have the LA Rams come here. Uh, and the idea is, what does, th- this is the way I govern. If, if I'm to pray for the peace of the city and this peace, you'll have peace and plant vineyards, build houses, be given in marriage, be given in marriage. What does Thousand Oaks, Newberry Park, what does the Conejo Valley look like for my grandson? Where he'll have viable employment, a house to live in, schools to educate his family. I'm striving for the future. A, a, a city grows great whose citizens plant trees of which shade they'll never know. And so I'm always striving towards the future. So bring the LA Rams here. That's infusion because we'll bring business here. Redevelopment of the downtown because if you don't redevelop the, the downtown corridor, you know, you, you, you have to move with the generations. They want mixed use. They want places to live and to shop and they want to have a cool kind of hip place. We want to revamp the the Rancho Corridor so that it's, you know, California is pushing towards eco-friendly. So if we, we do this green push, we'll be able to pull some of the businesses down from the Silicon Valley, which is overpriced and start to give you an opportunity that when you graduate, you have a job and that you have a place to live. Uh, we're limited on growth. So Measure E did that, but we're going to do the best we can to provide that. One of the things that's going to help is uh, the state passes grand grandmother cottages where you can build a house on your property. So we'll be able to start to create more affordable housing and it'll be a place where you can raise a family. That's what I strive for. Awesome. Uh, Another question is, what is a practical way for someone who doesn't want to become a politician uh, but still wants to fulfill their civic responsibility? You you may not want to be a politician, but you need to fulfill your civic responsibility. Tom Hunt doesn't want to be a politician, but he's at the city council meetings. He's there. He's praying for me. I see him in the front. Some of the things he does that's significant, he comes up and he praises the council. We seldom get people to say thank you. It's amazing. And what it does to change the heart of the council and that people are engaged and they're, 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 they're diligent and they know what the issues are facing the city and they interact. School board members need desperate help in that regard. I would volunteer on campaigns. I would participate in, in listen, state and federal, that's downstream. You can make an enormous change right here, right now. And it's community. And it's nonpartisan. It's not Democrat. It's not Republican. It's not independent. It's just people. I, I, I did, I'm, I, I'm a city councilman. My, my political affiliation is irrelevant. And that this is what you can do if you don't like partisan politics. Just participate locally because that's the greatest effect you'll have. And just support candidates. Participate in school board. Participate in prayer. Participate in... And city council, those are great ways to do it. Awesome. I think this kind of goes along that same line. Would you provide an example of how Jesus' commandment to love thy neighbor has influenced our city council? Um, I ran for, I, I did the primary and the general election for the state assembly. I ran for city council, won, and then was reelected. So I won three of the four races. In the primary, I went to seek the endorsement of the Ventura County Star. They wouldn't give it to me. They gave it to my competitor. In the general election, I went and I interviewed with the editorial board for their endorsement. They didn't give it to me. They gave it to my competitor. I ran for city council. I went to the editorial board. I asked for their endorsement. They gave it to my competitor. This fourth time I went there, it was an exercise in futility. I sit down with the editors and I said, look, I I know you already have uh, a date for the prom. Um, But I just want to tell you, I learn a lot every time I come. And I I know you're not going to, endorse me, but um, I just wanted to tell you what I've learned. I said, William Wilberforce is a hero of mine. He was used to end slavery in the British Empire 30 years before America did, and he did it without a shot being fired. He did it through the legislative process. It took over 50 years. 
he was an amazing man and by his own testimony and that of his, his contemporaries, as amazing as it was to abolish slavery in the British Empire, he said his greatest achievement by his own testimony and that of his peers was that he brought civility to the public process. He started to treat people kindly. And I said, he's my hero and I endeavor to do that. It used to be called in Fresno when you turn on the TV, the Tuesday night fights as you'd watch the city council meetings and the deliberations, they would fight endlessly. But now it's peace in the valley. We have ideological differences, but we come to a place where we have consensus. Most of the votes on the city council are 5-0, not because we're in full agreement, but we come to an agreement on one aspect of it and we, we unify on that. Sometimes if we're in disagreement, one will abstain. Claudia Bilde La Pena did that for me. She abstained. So it was a 4-0 vote instead of a 4-1 vote. And there's civility on the council. And, and so uh, about two weeks after that interview, the Ventura County Star comes out and says, uh, the city council races used to, or city council meetings used to be called the Tuesday night fights, but now it's peace in the valley and we endorse Rob McCoy for city council. That's a direct influence you can have in, in, in that. And, and I've, I've really gone out of my way to get to know these folks and befriend them and care for them. Awesome. This is this is an amazing question, and I'm glad I don't have to answer it. Uh, <laughs> you said that all three branches of California's government are controlled by one party, and this is problematic. Since we, the people, are directly affecting this by voting, it is just a result of what the people want. Why is this a problem? Uh, it's an imbalance, um, but, but let me put it to you this way. Uh, for two parties to benefit... Uh, for wealth to be created, two parties have to benefit. And I've used this illustration before. If Mike is a farmer and I'm a baker, I buy his grain from him with an upcharge that the market will bear. And, uh, and with the money he makes, he buys more fields and hires more workers. I take the grain, I turn it into bread, I sell it for what the market can bear. I buy more ovens, hire more workers. I create wealth. Two parties have to benefit for wealth to be created. Now the workers on the farm and the workers in the bakery have helped in creating that wealth. And so they unionize together to get a larger portion of what they help create. And that is called uh, um, private sector unions. In California, we have what are called public unions. These are, in the last 10 years in California politics, $300 million has been spent in political campaigns. Two-thirds of that has been donated by two organizations, the California Teachers Association and the uh, Service Employees International Union, both government unions. So what happens in a government union, governments don't create wealth. They don't create wealth. They divide it. They don't create it. So when you have a government union, what happens is they now pool together their resources they elect representatives that sit at the table with their union representatives and they have the kitty, which is the bank of the government, and they do all their transactions and they dominate. And the people that are left out are the taxpayers. And so what's happened is, as a result, this political entity has become unbelievably strong because they're backed. And that two-thirds of the spending of the CTA and the SEIU has gone to one party. As a, as a result, it's imbalanced. When I ran for state assembly... I raised $870,000 on my own. I was given a million dollars by the party. That's $1.87 million. The Democrats spent $6.3 million against me. I, I couldn't raise that money and all of it. Every day I'd look and Jackie was getting maximum donation from this union and that union and this union and that union. I can't compete. And you have people that follow you and they go through your trash and you get death threats and all kinds of stuff. It's come to a place now where it's so dominated that anyone who runs in opposition, you've seen what I faced here in the, in the county just being a pastor. And, and this is the, the political atmosphere we have in California right now. 
And with one party dominating, and they have what is called a supermajority both in the Senate and the Assembly, they don't need the Republicans anymore. And so they're going to tax you into oblivion. They just passed a 12-cent-a-gallon gas tax. All taxes are supposed to be voted on by the people. They just push that through. That is the dominance that happens. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. It's an imbalance. I, I can't compete to get my voice out there when I'm facing a behemoth of $6.3 million. I can only do so much. And yet when you're in that machinery, you dominate. You, I would just tell you right now, you'd be stupid not to be a Democrat in California. I don't know why I run as a Republican. Really, you, you won't, you, it's so hard to win. You just, and there, it, there's no balance. There's no competing voice. There's no one to challenge you. It, it's like you have the purse strings and you have no one telling you no. I know what I'd do with that. My parents gave me their, their wealth. Anybody? No? Okay, I thought I'd... Uh, should Christians in the USA always support the U.S. foreign policy, including military actions in countries like Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan? We rise and fall before one master. Our military allows conscientious objection. Um, you guys saw Hacksaw Ridge, right? You know, when you enter into the military, you, you have a responsibility to honor those in positions of authority above you. But as citizens, no. You know, I, I, Rand Paul is a good guy. He's a friend. Uh, his, his position on foreign policy is different than my own. But I like how he challenges and he shakes it up. And I, and I think we have to look at it. How many of us believed in my generation that there were weapons of mass destruction hidden by Saddam Hussein that never existed? Um, and yet the more you get involved, the more you start to understand these things. But yeah, I, 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 I don't see it. Yeah. Can any of us college kids run for office without any prior experience? If so, what advice would you give us starting at the beginning with something like that? Well, I'd run for a school office. I'd run for uh, a club office. I, I would start to understand how to legislate and understand these things and how to work with people. Sometimes people want to run because they have an ego issue. Um, sometimes people want to run because they don't have anything else to do or can't do anything else. Um, I, would, I would question yourself and ask why you want to run. What is it you want to do? When Ted Kennedy ran for office, they said, why do you want to be president of the United States? He couldn't answer it. He didn't know the why and what he was doing. If you don't have the why, then what are you doing? It has to be a passion for you. What is it you want to do? Why do you want to do it? What moves you? And, and have you built a, a consensus? Are you a peaceable person? Do you, do you get along with others? Will you represent them well? Do you have a heart for people? One of the reasons why I think pastors make good politicians is because the skill set of a pastor is a skill set of a politician. You have to be able to communicate truth. You have to be able to do well with people and want to make good things happen for them. And I, I think you need training on that. So, yeah. I, th I think this is an awesome question, but I, there's some words in there and I don't really know what they mean. Um, <laughs> as a 31-year-old Christian conservative who attends Republican and nonpartisan conservative gatherings, I'm shocked by the conspicuous absence of folks my age. Conspicuous. See, I don't even know how to pronounce the words, oh. let alone what they mean. Conspicuous <laughs> absence of folks my age 
who attend them. At some, I am the only millennial there. Is this impetus for reversing this? Is the impetus for reversing this trend more incumbent on the younger or the older? Is it a shared responsibility between the older and younger? I need to take a nap. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it a shared responsibility between the older and younger that cannot succeed unless both reconcile the differences and work together? I think this room is a perfect example of what needs to be done. If you guys are willing and we have the knowledge, we share that with you. We try to, to, you know, create a path for you in that direction. We try to make actuary points for you to be able to see it. We can't take you where we're not willing to go ourselves. Um, I think that the older folks need to lead. I need, I think the younger folks need to follow and, and, um, and every generation has to inspire the next. But if, if you guys are checking out and, and you don't see the wiser strengths that make Ben free and you don't see a passion for your generation and you're giving up, you know, I had a, a coach who used to say, you can't teach a pig to sing because it annoys a pig and it's a waste of your time. And, and the beautiful thing about coming on a Sunday night when you got school on Monday is you're not a pig. You're, you're here to learn and be challenged. You want to make a difference. And so I think this is a perfect example of how to change that. Uh, someone asked, can you explain what happens to the revenue of the gas tax? <laughs> no. <laughs> I believe in climate change. I believe Sacramento needs a climate change, Pol- <laughs> political climate change. Has there ever... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Uh, that pretty oh, lady over there oh, with yes. the sunglasses. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So we were in the council meeting last. Michelle's referring to the council meeting. I was just at, and they they said I wanted the newspaper accused me of wanting to do a sales tax increase, which couldn't be further from the truth. So I'm sitting in this council meeting, and and they're talking about a four and a half million dollar deficit that our city has for our roads and and improvements, and that we're running a deficit. And then one of our council members says, well, the state with the 12 cent gas tax, we're going to get $3 million of revenue from that. And that's going to help us. And I heard that and I went, whoa, time out. That's not helping us. I said, let's think about this for a second. The 12 cents a gallon gas tax hits 50,000 drivers in our community. Plus there's a $25 fee tacked onto that. So every driver, 50,000 of us, it's another $300 a year that they're taking out of our community. That's the equivalent of about $15 million. They take $15 million and go flush it in Sacramento and they willingly and joyfully with their benevolence give us 3 million of our 15. And what do they do with the other 12? I have no idea. All I know is they're not building dams. Do you realize enough water goes over the Orville spillway in a day during the rains to satiate the needs of Sacramento, the entire city, for two years? Had we built enough storage, we would have salmon runs and water for decades. This is the most amazing storm we've ever had, and every ounce of that water is just flooding out to the Pacific Ocean. It's just, it's just flooding out to the Pacific Ocean. The snow melt that we have, this glorious snow melt, we don't have anywhere to store it. It's just going to melt, flow out to the Pacific Ocean. We get a big, and then it's done. And then another five years, we're like, we're out of water because they don't build anything. 12 million, I don't know what they did. They flushed it. Had we done, and this was my illustration, I said, okay. I turned to the city manager. I said, what if we did a, a half cent sales tax increase? What would that generate revenue in the city? He said, $14 million. 
I said, well, that's my point. If we decided to take $14 million out of the city by our own citizens, all 14 million would, trust me, go into the streets. Every penny of it. The higher up it goes, the less it comes down. And the next thing he said, McCoy wants to do a sales tax increase in the city. I'm like, we we don't need more taxes. We need less spending. So, yeah, maybe one more and we'll call it a night. Yeah. A really good one. I have three to choose from. I think this is, whoa, wait, one just came in. Uh. Ooh, more big words, more big words. (laughs) I think I know who's doing that. Concerning individuals you deal with who believe morality is relative, how do you address an issue without them immediately dismissing you? In other words, how do you how do you validate your position and ideologies to people who clear who are clearly against you? A servant speaks when he's spoken to and offers his opinion when he's asked. It's not it's not my job to win them. It, the Lord, it, it's a mir- salvation is a miracle of the Lord. I build a relationship, and and the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. And a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. And an offended brother is harder one than a fortified city. So the first thing is they're going to throw stuff out at you that are going to try to just get you riled. It's like water off a duck's back. You have to choose to be offended. And I don't know if you were here this morning, but I read that letter that the guy sent me. And you heard my response. The, well, what I didn't read is the response he sent to me. And he was, he was nicer. He was a lot nicer, but he still jabbed me at the end. And he didn't want to have coffee. And I wrote him another nice note because he was talking about his 87-year-old father who was a Republican and now he's starting to realize the error of his ways and he's getting upset and on and on and on. I said, my dad died last year at 87. I'm so glad your dad has all of his faculties and he's sharp. My dad had Alzheimer's for 15 years. So thank you for responding to me. I wish you well. If you have any need, just give me a holler. I just let it go. Because I'm not going to fight with a guy. I want to serve him. You know, Jesus was accused, he opened his mouth, not a word. And, and, and there's going to be those times, the greatest way, a gift opens up the way for a giver. Go build relationships. It's long term. It's not us and them. Go, go to places that you're, you know, a, a missionary goes where he's not loved but deeply needed and he leaves when he's deeply loved and no longer needed. Go to places they don't expect you to go. I went over to the Islamic Center. I stepped in there. I was probably the only conservative there and all these signs. It was after the executive order on immigration and they're all rallying out there and I show up and I'm like telling Michelle, I love you and this is probably the last call I'm gonna be able to make. And I, <laughs> and I walked in there and I'm, I'm asking the Lord to send me a friend. I'm on the other side of Borchard. I'm looking over at the mosque. I'm saying, Lord, send me a friend. I see this Muslim guy in his full garb videotaping. I go, hey, what's your name? He goes, I'm Samir. I go, Samir, I'm Rob. He goes, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. He said, thanks for coming. I said, oh, sure. He goes, uh, he goes, let me give you a tour. I'll go introduce you to the mom. And I walk across the street with everyone sneering at me like, why are you here? You know, and, and obviously you're in favor of the executive order. And I, I just, I'm, I'm here today to celebrate the First Amendment, the right to peaceably assemble for right of redress of grievances against the government. I think that's great. I'm just so impressed with what y'all are doing. Peaceful assembly is awesome. I just kept it on a positive note. And, and I go get a tour. I meet the moms. I come over. He's with me. The mayor, Claudia Bilde Le Pena, who had invited me, she comes running up, Rob, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm the only council member who took her up on her offer. And I said, you got to stay by my side because there's a lot of people here who want to kill me. And, and, and she comes up, she says, I'm so excited. 
And she takes the sticker and she says, I got your name down. She puts it on there and says, Rob McCoy, City Council. At which point Samir goes, you're Rob McCoy? <laughs> and I look at him, I go, I'm obviously not who you, you expected me to be because you're not who I expected you to be. And he smiling, goes, no, you aren't. And we had a connection. I gave him a hug and he introduced me to his wife, Madiha. And then there had been an article that come out that, that Sunday morning by a guy named John Cummings, who is head of Indivisible Conejo. And he's monitoring me because he's super left and he just, he's monitoring me. I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and the article, you know, the, the, the guy who wrote the article is a good article. And, and as I'm sta- standing there with Samir and Mayor Bill de la Pena, Claudia goes, Rob, I want you to meet one other person. She goes, Rob, uh, she said, John Cummings, I want you to meet Rob McCoy. And John looks at me. I go, John, I'm here so it'd be easier to monitor me. And he starts laughing. I give him a hug, you know, and, and, uh, and I just, just love on him. I, I didn't have to contend with him. And he had a sign up there and he was looking at me while he's talking. At least I felt that way. And he's just, and you know, and I, and I'm just smiling. I I'm immortal until God's done with me. I'm there to present Christ. It's the fragrance of Christ. It's the aroma of life to those who want to live and the aroma of death to those who are perishing. I'm just there. That's what I do. Just and it's so great because we live with each other. We see each other at the store, build relationships. You want to talk about evangelism? Go into that world. I got endorsed by the log cabin Republicans. Those are the homosexual aspect of the, of the Republican Party. You know why? Because I went. They're like, what are you doing here? Right-wing evangelical fundamentalist preacher at a log cabin gathering. I said, I was invited. And they introduced me and I stepped up and and I shared with them the story about my sister and they were touched and they asked me some questions and I responded and, and I said, you know, you guys are gonna be on the forefront of protecting my, my religious liberty and we're the ones who have persecuted you and I, I, we desperately need you to protect us now. And if you believe in freedom and freedom of religion, the first amendment, are you gonna be militant and shut us down because we have conscience? And we have to build these bridges, not create walls. And they were moved, and I was candid with them, but, but I was kind, and they endorsed me. I thought that was pretty cool. So, is that it? Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for hearing me out. Let me pray for you, and then we'll go. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Lord, thank you for tonight, and thank you, God, for these cultural mountains of influence. And Lord, next week with David Brody, we ask your blessing upon him, traveling mercies. And Lord, thank you for these folks who come in to this service week in and week out, just ready to receive and being challenged. And a lot of things they hear that they may not agree with, but they they just persevere. And I'm so grateful for, uh, especially in this generation, to see young people willing to pursue truth and to dig in. So Lord, bless their efforts, encourage them, give them rest tonight that this week would be an abundant blessing for them. And, and Lord, we just commit all this to you. Thank you for the food and the hands prepared it and serve it. And Lord, thank you for all who make this night possible. And we love you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.